You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. Welcome back, friends. Please make sure your pod seats and tray tables are in their upright and locked positions. The airlock has been sealed and docking clamps have been released for an on-time departure to the functional nerdverse. Is it still snowing, Patrick? Uh, yes. I, I object on your behalf, although I am not a Coloradan <laughs> and therefore not, not directly affected by this, but... What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because they 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 said it was going to and but we had like a ninety degree day the day before, and right. they're like it's yeah. not going to stick. So, it's not going to. So you're stick. like they're idiots. Yeah, that but can't it's, be true. It's the wet, heavy snow. So all of our trees have bloomed and have leaves now. And this morning they were all drooping. And there's reports of, you know, uh, Giles over beyond the trope lost a couple of branches because they they mm. broke yeah, in yeah. the middle of the night. My aunt and uncle. In Centennial, lost power because a, a branch fell and, and hit a power line. So it's just one of those weird things. Normally in May, we don't get snow. We get hail. But okay. for some reason, so, I mean, they, they are violent. saying that we're we're getting the, uh, the wind effects from La Nina. So we're getting uh, really bad winds from that. Uh, okay. The thing I can tell you about this particular storm, Tracy, is good luck. It's yours in a few days. I mean, we're getting it. We're getting it as rain. Like we're yeah. So I mean, next week is going to be all rain here in Chicagoland. But that's that's not a problem that you have in L.A. If you're Beth Morrison, and not I hope a problem that you're having, Boyd, out where you are. No, it's it's not actually nice and sunny today and 58 degrees. And it's actually overcast in Los Angeles. So we're <laughs> oh no, Seattle for a change. Are people panicking? Like, do they know what to do when it's? You know, I think people are huddled in their homes uh, with emergency gear. Oh right, yeah, yeah. So it's. I mean, they're just like praying to sun gods and things and invoking the old powers. <laughs> Please come back! Please come back! <laughs> So the voices that you're hearing there, listeners, are Beth and Boyd Morrison, Boyd and Beth Morrison, equal treatment under the law for the siblings, um, (laughs) who are a sibling duo who have united forces to write a book together, The Lawless Land, uh, which has actually just released um, and is an interesting collaboration for me and in so many ways as someone who's sort of a history geek and also um, a novelist and interested in, in the whole world of that. And also a sibling who would probably kill her brother sooner than be able to accomplish <laughs> writing a novel with him. So bravo, Boyd and Beth. <laughs> Thank can you. you. Can you talk us through how... How does this process begin? How did it, how did you, did you just like call each other up and be like, let's write a book or... Well, I was writing with uh, Clive Cussler on the Oregon Files series at the time, and I decided it was time for me to go back to uh, working on my own books. And I was thinking about what kind of, I, I'm a thriller author, and, and so I know I knew I wanted to write a thriller, but I was trying to think of what the subject would be. And one of the genres I was considering was historical thriller. And I know a lot about World War II and that era. Um, but I, I didn't know exactly the, the, the World War II genre was kind of full at the time. And so I was looking at what else I could do. And I, I was talking to my wife about it. And she said, well, if you want to do a historical thriller, you've got a built-in co-author. And I said, well, who's that? And she said, <laughs> uh, your sister Beth, who is a world authority on the Middle Ages. And I said, oh, yeah, I totally forgot about that. And 
And so I gave her a call and asked her what she thought of writing a, a novel with me. And, and Beth, how did, how did that call go? Uh, it was actually really exciting. I have written a number of nonfiction books before and had long followed Boyd's career. And, you know, I really love the thriller action adventure genre. And so I, it had never occurred to me that he might want me to co-write with him. And so when he asked me on the phone, it sort of took me like, well, two nanoseconds to say, yes, yes, I would. <laughs> so we had always been really good friends. And since I had always read Boyd's novels before um, as a sort of first editor, it really seemed like a natural extension of what we had done before, except like more exciting on my part. That's awesome. So that answer sort of covers one of the the things that I imagine lots of people have talked to both of you about as you as you've been um, sharing the story of writing your story out here in the media. Um, but I think if 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 I were approached by my sibling with a proposal like that, my mind would immediately flash to all the times that I'd like had to pick up his end of the chores, or he was like, "No, no, no! If you do it this time, I'll do it next time." Honest, really, it's going to be good, and. Uh, so clearly, it seems like that is not the, the baseline groundwork of your relationship together. So good on you for that. Yeah, we, we work really well together. And, and it helps that the division of labor is pretty well um, delineated for this project. So we, we talk every day, pretty much, and we plot out the book together. And we both have strong opinions on, uh, you know, I have strong opinions on storytelling. Beth has strong opinions on, on the medieval era. And, and so putting those together, we would, we would have discussions, but I don't think we ever had a, a real argument about things. We would have long discussions if we disagreed about something, but we'd eventually come to a consensus. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we would get down to the chapter by chapter plotting and once, once we had agreed on what was going to happen, I would write the chapters and send them to Beth, and she would edit them and also add in all of the medieval stuff that I had no idea about. So I would say, this, this noble lady is wearing clothes. And that's about the <laughs> level of detail I knew. And then she would add her part in. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Boyd and I had always been really close friends. We weren't the kind of, I mean, of course we were siblings, so there was some squabbling while we were growing up, but we've always been really, really supportive of each other's careers and all of that. And so Boyd has come down to see all of my major exhibitions at the Getty. He even came down to New Orleans one time to watch me run a marathon just for moral support. So it's always been like, a relationship in my life that I can really, really rely on. And I think that made a difference when we started co-writing together because we took each other's concerns really seriously, but we also had a really good time doing all of it. I mean, just even talking with them on the phone every day, joking around about what the characters would do was a real source of tension relief in, in trying to come up with the plot. So it ended up working really well. And of course, I loved adding in all of the medieval details because I felt like that, that was my one go-to. That was my contribution. Well, it, for, well, a huge one, of course, is um, I, I, I don't want to um, downsell uh, what, what the lawless land is. And, and you need a chance, of course, to sort of pitch the, the, the plot anyway. Uh, but there is a little bit of a MacGuffin operating there. Um, and the, 
the text that is the point of interest that's part of of what's driving the characters uh, to do what they're doing is one that I don't think the majority of people have any historical knowledge of. Um, and and again, I mentioned before that I, I tend to think of myself as a bit of a history nerd, um, but I'm not even sure I know how to pronounce this one. It's the Hodegetria? It's the Hodegetria. Hodegetria. All right. So, Okay. This is where we get into what's the book about and what is the Hodegetria and and take us there. We always are talking who should who should do the plot summary. Those goes. <laughs> yeah, I I'll, I'll do it. Do it. <laughs> I'll do it this time. So yeah. a a uh, knight errant in 1351 Western Europe, right after the worst of the Black Death, is. Um, has been dispossessed. He has lost his land, lost his reputation, and he is on a quest to get it back. And while he's on a lonely road in Southern England, he comes across a noblewoman who is fleeing from her life from soldiers intent on killing her. He comes to her rescue and finds out that they have a common enemy and she has a priceless relic in her possession that the the most powerful people in Europe are after. And so they go on this um, this journey to try to save this relic and secure it from being used for nefarious purposes. And that object is the Hodegetria. And I'll let Beth explain what that is. Yeah, because because, because I, now, now now hold on because I want the listeners to understand that we have video, and <laughs> and Beth is ridiculously excited as he's reading. Like she's just so ready to go, go Beth, go. That's because that's the only part that I'm good at. <laughs> Boyd's much better with the pitch, and then I'm much better at coming in and saying what happened <laughs> in evil stuff. So, um, so yes. Yeah, so when Boyd and I, when he proposed that we write this book together, because I'm senior curator of manuscripts at the Getty Museum and have studied medieval manuscripts for you know 30 years, I told him my one condition was that a manuscript had to be at the center of of the plot. And nice. because we wanted it to be the center of the plot, I had to think of something that would really some some kind of aspect of an illuminated manuscript that would change the face of Europe if it came to someone finding it and being able to use it. And so um, it's hard for people uh, to really understand how powerful the Catholic Church was in the Middle Ages, but it really dominated every aspect of your life, not just if you were a monk or something, but everything was centered around the church. Your social life was centered around the church. Even the way they told time was centered around um, how the church divided up the day. And so when you could have a relic, which was an aspect of a, a saint uh, you know, like a finger bone or something like that. Um, people would travel from uh, all over Europe if they thought that that relic had miraculous powers. And so the Hodegetria is a miraculous painting uh, that was supposedly made um, by St. Luke of the Virgin and Child in person, like they, they modeled basically for him. And that painting was said to be handed down through time and it was said to have all these miraculous powers. So if you, for instance, were in possession of this painting, 
it could help you win major battles. You would carry it with you and you could basically have all the power you wanted. And so we made a slight historic change in that everyone has always thought the Hodegetria was a painting, but we made it a manuscript painting. And so it's in this manuscript that they're basically trying to save from all these nefarious characters uh, from misusing as a way of getting their own power. Whereas the good guys, who are of course our main characters, um, realized that it would be used very badly if they got their hands on it. So, so is the is the is the quote unquote real one in the Vatican archives where no one can ever see it? <laughs> <laughs> so there, that's part of the fun thing was me coming up with. Um, a historical background for the object that kind of explains um, what happened to it, because it was said to have disappeared after the Byzantine Empire fell, and nobody really knew what happened to it. And so we're just saying, this is what happened to it in our book. And now you have to read the book to find out why we don't know where it is today. <laughs> so it sounds like you've, you've kind of done history buff fanfic here to a certain extent. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. I, I think the number of people who, who would know about the Hodegetria fanfic is quite small, but we're trying to make it bigger. <laughs> <laughs> so you're actually the second author in a row, uh, author pairing. Well, you're the first author pairing, but second, pot- you know what I'm trying to say. Um, last week on The Functional Nerds, uh, we were talking to Elaine Isaac, who also writes in historical fantasy and and is accustomed, because she's a, she's a one-woman show, to doing all of the research and all of the composing together. And I asked her the question about, you know, when do you, do you find that the research project and process, like knowing stuff, does it make you feel more obliged to kind of hew to history? Or do you feel like the knowledge that you get gives you permission to be a little bit more fast and loose? And she had an interesting answer to that. And so I'm, I'm sort of wondering for the two of you, like how did you kind of negotiate the sort of like, well, we know certain stuff. Also, there's certain stuff we don't know, and we're just going to sort of like make up our own thing. But for stuff where you know where like the truth of what happened is not convenient to the narrative, did you have a process for hashing that out? Yeah, we even wrote an article called uh, How to Know When You Can Fudge History in Your Historical <laughs> Fiction. And uh, I come from the storytelling side where I wanted our story to be a fast-paced action adventure, and so story is everything. And I was more willing to compromise on the historical aspects, and then Beth was there to rein me in and go, no, you don't need to do that, or that that changes history too much. And actually, when we ended up with the story, we we had changed very, very little. And and, um, what we did change was were usually minor details, nothing about actual history. We didn't change anything about what what actually happened in Europe at that time. But uh, Beth actually wrote an afterward at the end of the book to explain what was real and and the very few things that we changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we didn't really want to like cheat readers. We wanted to be very open. And what our process was, was always like, okay, we are making a conscious choice to not follow history here. And we have good reasons for it. And so it was a little bit of a combination, but a really good example that I do talk about in the afterword that Boyd mentioned is that um, at one point we have this um, judicial duel in the book, uh, which is super exciting. Um, And in reality, 
something like that did exist, and it certainly did exist in the 14th century, but it probably would have followed um, quite a long protracted legal case in the courts. And that, you know, like having a two-year pause in the middle of the story was really just not working for us. And so we decided to have the king just say, yes, they're moving to a judicial duel. So although that didn't actually um, happen, it was conceivable because the king was the king. And if he had wanted a judicial duel at that moment, he could have said so. So it's a little bit of a blend between um, history and reality, um, but it doesn't really stray into fantasy, is what I would say. Yeah, we I see, I speeded see. things up mainly, or or changed the the order of things. But we didn't really, we, like I said, we didn't invent new history. You know, it's not like France invaded England or something like that. <laughs> I, I was just gonna say, I I I do remember a quote from uh, Mel Brooks: "It's good to be the king." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, every genre has 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 nerds, has fans, right? And, and it, who lose their shit when you change something <laughs> or when something isn't quite right. I you know, the, the, when when it's when it's like a modern day thriller, if if a character, you know, if if the text says that they 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 dropped the clip from their gun and grabbed another one. Do you have people losing their mind going, it's a magazine? Yes. I remember, I remember someone losing their mind over a historical fantasy because the, the, someone got on a horse and they described the horse and they rode off and they're like, that breed of horse did not exist in that country at that time. You can't have that. This whole thing is crap. And I was just like, wow, uh, Star Wars fans aren't that bad now. (laughs) <laughs> well, and, and you said it was a fantasy, so no, it was it was like well, yeah, but it was like a historical it could, fantasy, so it could conjure a new type of horse, with magic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, selective magical breeding. And I know that we will get there will be medievalists out there who read the book who will say on page two hundred and fourteen you say that such and such, and that can't possibly be. And so in the afterward, I actually take. Uh, responsibility. I'm like, if you think medieval that's wrong, go ahead and blame me. And there will be those people. But again, at the end of the day, it is fiction. And you know, we need to remind people of that. Well, you know? you got to be able to take write nonfiction. They get people who debate stuff and that didn't really happen or it did really happen. And and so, yeah. you know, that's, I, I would love if, if the book generated a lot of debate about things in, in the historical aspect of the story. So that would be great. It's not the worst press that you could get. That's for no. sure. And so having I, been I, an academic, I can tell you, I, there is nothing that is worse than being attacked up there when you're giving an academic paper. So this is going to be easy. <laughs> just, just don't go to Goodreads. Just like, right, don't yeah. go there. And yeah, I mean, it's it's fairly easy <laughs> to avoid the, the crossfire if you are inclined. So thinking about um, your mentioning, Boyd, that you were sort of uh, coming from the storytelling perspective of how to make history useful to the narrative. Was there some point in the brainstorming and plotting process where Beth dropped some piece of history on you where you were like, no shit, man, what? Where like there was something that actually happened where you were like, this is so much better slash crazier than anything I could have come up with? I yeah, to... yeah. I, I'm trying to think of, I'm sure there were many parts of that that I, because I don't know anything about right. the medieval era, except for what I absorbed from, from talking to Beth over the years. Yeah, they were close. 
Yeah, and and so Beth, do you remember anything that I think? Yeah, surprised some of the, me. Some of the facts that I laid on you about the um, sort of consequences of the Black Death, I think, were really surprising to you mm-hmm. because we were we actually started this novel in 2018, uh, well before anyone had any idea of a pandemic, and the before times. It, yeah, four times. Yeah, um, and we we set it in the 14th century because it seemed like that would be a really interesting era to set it in because there was the Black Death and there was the Hundred Years' War. So there was a lot of sort of crazy things happening in Europe uh, that we could integrate into the story. And then once the pandemic came, I think we're still amazed at looking at all of the things that are parallels between now and our novel. And one of them is I was telling Boyd that after the Black Death, one of the big sort of upheavals that happened in the social fabric of the European Middle Ages was the fact that there wasn't as much labor because like so many people died. And so there were, you know, there was all of a sudden this um, need for labor. And so people could charge a lot more and the peasants wouldn't be tied to the little tiny piece of land that they had farmed forever. And they could actually demand higher wages. And so the kings and the nobility tried to pass laws against inflation and they were having trouble. <laughs> hold, 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 hold up, <laughs> Beth, are you telling me that the current state of the $15 an hour movement and inflation as we know it post-pandemic has its roots in the 14th century? It's it's a history. I'm about to fall fact. out my chair. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what's amazing. If you start to study history, nothing is new. Like we think this like, oh my God, the pandemic that shut down the world. This is the first time it's ever happened. Nope. Guess again. Well, and that was that that goes to one thing that we did include in the story that I wasn't aware of and and learned about was that the the nobles and the royalty were so afraid of the peasants getting this new power and being able to sell their labor to the highest bidder, they actually passed laws saying they couldn't do that. And it it engendered a bunch of peasant revolts in the the latter half of the 14th century. And um, we even feature a scene with uh, a peasant who tried to sell his work for a higher price than was allowed. And so he's put into the pillory to be shamed uh, because of that. And so that that directly tied into a, a scene in the book. And and I had no idea about it. So, so now I want to flip Tracy's question and, and ask Beth, was there anything that Boyd wanted to put in the book that you were like, no, we can't do that? <laughs> Well, it's interesting you say that. We we had that quite a number of times, to tell you the truth. But it was then our job to figure out how to make the book fit with the historical facts. So one of the first things that we ran into was that Boyd um, wanted to have the main character, Gerard Fox and Lady Isabel, sort of ride across Europe by themselves. And I'm like, well, that just wouldn't happen. Lady Isabel would have to have had a lady's maid with her. It wouldn't have been appropriate for her. They would have drawn all kinds of attention. It just, um, it's not going to work. And Boyd was like, "Ah, can't we just like sink the lady's maid and go on? Nobody knows that. Um, But we actually then ended up coming up with a way to make it work and and actually make it a part of the plot. And I'll let Boyd tell you about that bit. Yeah, we, we came up with an excuse for um, why the, their their ladies maid and valet were were no longer riding with them. And so we 
we decided, and and I I I'm pretty sure my research is correct that they they ate some deadly death cap mushrooms in um, in the forest when they were foraging for food and died. And so they, they as they're riding, they had to bury their ladies maiden ballot who didn't exist. And um, that's the excuse they gave that, oh, we're, we're looking for new ones right now. But, you know, it's so hard with 40% of everybody dying in the last few years that um, there is this labor shortage. So it actually fed directly from the plot of the time period. And, and uh, it was fun. And then then there are parts in the story where they come up with different excuses and it becomes a fun little uh, uh bit between them about running coming up with different excuses about why they're traveling together. Uh, longtime listeners will know that uh, one of my goals on this show is to get a spit take out of people. And <laughs> I, when I asked that question at first, there was a, there was a reaction from Boyd that I thought he was going, I was going to get a spit take out of it. <laughs> <laughs> now you've, I mean, you've gotten close in some of our just us episodes. There, I there, have, yes. There, there have been incidents, um, but well, yeah. Well, this that's... one's not over yet. <laughs> that's true. We got time. That's like, don't set your goals too low. Come on, man. Don't give up. <laughs> You know, I do. This is major sidebar here, but the the whole eating of the death cap mushrooms as a way of sort of ushering inconvenient characters off stage <laughs> raises for me an ongoing. Which I don't know. Perhaps as as a historian, you have some perspective on Beth, but like food history is a very different thing than manuscript history. But then again, amongst manuscripts are cookery books and things of that nature. I am endlessly fascinated with the process of human beings discovering edible foods and deciding to cook them because there are so many of them that will just kill you dead. Like there's a meme that circulates about mushrooms where they're like, can you just imagine what it was like people trying to figure out what mushrooms to eat? Like, well, this one's delicious and this one makes us see funny colors and this one made this guy talk to God and this dude's just dead. Um, it just the, the, and of course, there's uh, phobias that circulated for a very long time uh, surrounding nightshades, um, you know, particularly like non-problematic nightshades like peppers and and tomatoes and, and eggplants being sort of grouped into the poisonous family and and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm the first person who went up to a maple tree and said, oh, that that goop that's <laughs> leaking out of it. I bet that would be good on pancakes. <laughs> I will even throw out like the first person who walked up and said, oh, my God, oh, this this fruit smells like death, but I'm going to try to eat it. And they actually ate durian. Right. right. And, and that right. became a thing that people I eat. think starvation had to be, be in play. <laughs> at some oh. point. Yeah. Or yeah, they just, like actually, saw an animal eat it and they're like, well, yeah, yeah, they didn't die. Um, yeah, maybe it comes from starvation. Fe uh, we feature a feast in the novel, which was another part that I really had a chance to sort of, you know, play my big role and say what they would have been eating because medieval feasts were long and elaborate and, and featured things that we don't eat anymore. One of the most famous feasts actually of the 15th century, so after our book, was called the Feast of the Peacock because they actually cooked a whole peacock and put the feathers back on afterwards and that was carried in sort of as a centerpiece. They would often gild them, actually. Um, I imagine so, that would have to look like those bad taxidermy things that you see online. <laughs> it's sort of like, did. it's kind of a peacock now. <laughs> a, little, a little roasty. Yeah. And, and the whole, you know, the, the nursery rhyme about the four and 20 blackbirds baked in a pie, that that's real. That, that kind of stuff happened in the Middle Ages. So um, yeah, there was a lot of weird stuff. 
um, mostly around uh, parts of animals that we don't really enjoy eating anymore, that were definitely part of medieval cuisine. <laughs> and, and I had to keep in mind about what didn't exist in Europe at the time, because yeah. this is before Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And yeah. so Don't at one point, on the potato. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. You, you read that or, or I took that out, fortunately. Yeah. But at one point, Gerard Fox is wearing armor on a very sunny day. And I said in the in the narration that he felt like he was baking like a potato and Beth wrote to me, uh, potatoes didn't exist in Europe at the time, so you got to change that. Turnip. So then he changed turnip. it to baking, roasting a tomato. Baking like a turnip, and I was like, yeah. no tomatoes. And then he changed it to a squash. Yeah. <laughs> then he ate some guacamole. And Yeah. And, I mean, and there's also choices to be made about there's some language use which is accurate to the period, but could be confusing to a modern reader, particularly a Western reader, like the reference of all grain is corn, but corn, as we know it, not a thing in Europe, like right. the Western sort of um, like indigenous notion of corn. But like what they're really talking about is like barley and millet and whatnot, but it's all corn, bro. Yeah. That's yeah, where the word yeah, words, comes Beth from. Would, yeah. Beth would challenge me on words that I used in narration. And she said that word wasn't invented until the 1800s. And so we would change it. Or and also naming characters, you know we we you know couldn't name characters Madison, you know, <laughs> or Ashley because those names didn't exist. So you know we had to go back to name roles that that were published in the 14th century and pick from those. And so we you know tried to keep the names period specific. Mm-hmm. You run into nice. other weird stuff though too because there's the, there's the infamous Tiffany paradox though. Where, um, if I remember correctly, Tiffany is is a name of endearment. I forget what it is a shortened form of. It may be of Teresa, but it's a name that actually it was in circulation in the 12th century. Um, and so it's one of those things where we associate it so strongly with modernity. You know, Tiffany's, um, you know, jewelry and, and, you know, breakfast at Tiffany's and all that sort of stuff that if you were to put it in a historical manuscript or put it in a, a, I should say, historical fiction and there's a character named Tiffany, people would be like, nope, I'm out. That that doesn't work. That won't. But but in fact, it was a name that was not terribly common, but was but was real and was in circulation. Yeah, yeah, we have were, a number were, of things like that. that yeah, we, we, uh, we have a, a jousting tournament in the book. And, you know, we're, we're, as you mentioned, we're kind of fighting against pop culture sometimes about what people's expectations of the time period would be just through movies and books and TV shows, and many of which got the actual history wrong. And so there probably will be people who say, no, that's not correct, even though it was. And one of the examples was in the jousting tournament in, in 1351, they would not have had a rail separating the riders, as you see in most jousts um, on TV and movies, and because that didn't get invented until the 15th century. And so we explained, without the authorial um, intrusion tried to explain that these riders were riding at each other with no, nothing separating them, just like they would on a battlefield. Um, and hopefully, people won't go. Wait a minute! How come there's no, you know, rail separating the riders? Because that's what we know. So, so you don't have a section uh, with footnotes like where you go. Uh, <laughs> 
not not depicted as seen in the Heath Ledger movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. 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 This is not first night. <laughs> Which is a great movie, by the way. No, it, it really is. Isn't. It's super fun. Yeah. It's super yeah. fun. Chaucer's it, it, a, Chaucer's the, the one that I will, I'm going to throw this out there. The movie that, that I get a lot of shit for loving is actually the 13th warrior with Antonio yes. Banderas. Mm-hmm. I get a lot of shit for loving that movie. I keep hoping that eventually like more people are going to come to it. And like it. I know it's inaccurate. I know it's inaccurate, but I just love it so much. It's well, such a good I mean, movie. Come on. It's not like Monty Python and the Holy Grail is full of like medieval, you know, accuracies and people still love that movie. So. <laughs> run away, run away. Yeah, I think we, we imprint on things. And once we've imprinted on them, we've made our decisions about what we've decided must be true or must be acceptable. Um, but, you know, there's a we've talked about this, um, putting a pitch once again for Patreon. Sometimes you get to hear the two of us talk and it's just us going completely off the rails without intelligent, <laughs> organized people like Boyd and Beth there to, to restrain us. And uh, we've talked before about like movies that are not good movies, but are great. Um, and, and I think media of all kinds can lend itself towards that and sort of how we imprint on things have, have a lot of, um, impact on what sticks with us. And I know there are some things I, I, I'm a child of the eighties largely. And so I really strongly imprinted on stuff that if I were to rewatch it now, I would go, Oh no, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> well, there, like, there's, there, yeah, there, not to, not to go too far down this tangent, but yeah. there are. There are things that happen in television and movies and books and media today that happen that way because someone a hundred years ago making a movie decided to change something, right. and it just became part of the zeitgeist. Right? It's just it's just yeah. part of it. It's how people understand things. And now, when you try to do something more accurate, mm-hmm. people go, "What the fuck are you doing? You can't do that. That's not how yeah. it is." Yeah, a really good example of that is this idea that the knights um, with their armor weighed so much that they had to be put on their horses for jousting with cranes. That actually has been traced to, um, you know, a 19th century book that did a line drawing like this must have been what happened because they were so heavy. And then it's just entered the consciousness. And now you see it in movies and you see it all over the place. And it really is just a pure invention. It did not exist. Um, yeah. So it really is interesting how those things become, in a way, more medieval than the actual Middle Ages. Yeah. When if you stop to think about it, you're like, you know what? A mounting block would be so much easier. <laughs> they just like step yeah, up on a mountain. Walk up and yeah. get on the horse. Like, and they'd figured and they out to stairs. Be, if so. you got knocked off your horse, you had to be able to get back on. <laughs> yep. Right. So right. you know, yeah. It and and you know, I'm sure, especially with the arms and armor. We did have somebody who is an expert read it through and and give us their feedback and said mm-hmm. we, we got it we got it right but I'm sure you know because at at the time of our book plate armor hadn't been invented yet and so mm-hmm. they were mostly wearing male armor and um, you know but that's not what we see in most jousting tournaments and movies they're wearing the big plate armor with the shiny metal and that's that's not how it was at the time of our book. Yeah. Chainmail. Yeah. So, so what I'm hearing is that uh, the most accurate representation is Dungeons and Dragons. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we kid, but 
uh, on the subject of 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 um, things we love and and nonsense and whatnot, probably time for picks of the week, yeah. Picks of the week. Picks of the week. All right. Um, so I'll I guess I'll demo how this thing goes, and then we'll have our guests jump in, and and Patrick can close us out with his expertise and picking picks picking picking things. That's a word. Yeah. The, the second one is a word. The first Mitzit one was not a word. Yeah, that one. Yeah. Um, so my pick of the week is a book which is a sort of blend of memoir and history. It's written by uh, Sarah, um, Sarah Stewart Johnson. It's called The Sirens of Mars. And uh, it sort of follows her background as a young scientist working for NASA. Um, she's really in her late 20s and early 30s uh, at the time of this writing. And she's writing about uh, her experiences working on the Mars rover uh, project in particular. And also sort of the, the fascination that human beings have with space and Mars in particular. You know, going all the way back to um, envisioning slash imagining canals uh, in our early exploits with sensitive telescopes and sort of why why Mars? Why do we have this urge to imagine it as a life-filled, habitable place or as an archaeological site or as whatever else? Um, and so it's, it's a really great read. It's quite lyrical um, and it really kind of a thoughtful exploration, not just of her own experiences, but of sort of this larger history of, you know, if why do we nerd out about this when there are so many other things, you know, on the world that we're literally standing on that we could focus on? Why do we keep looking to the stars? So if you're interested in um, a sort of nuanced and broad reaching take on uh, the, the sort of history of Mars exploration, where we are, where we've gone and, and where we could be going, check out the Sirens of Mars. Very cool. Boyd, give a pick. I'm going to reach back to my days as, as a uh, when I worked in Microsoft and the Xbox Games Group, and I have been playing the new Halo Infinite lately, and it's it's really good, and and I really like how they made it more of an open world concept where you could just explore and and go. You don't have to go in this in a set order of things like you did in in previous halo games but it's still you know the 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 play is still a lot of fun and um lots of new gadgets to use and so yeah it's i've been having a lot of fun with that and and if i may ask from a gamer perspective which which console are you playing that on xbox which which xbox oh uh, xbox uh uh xbox one okay yeah very cool because i know the the S and there's another one are hard to get, really hard to get. Yeah, I don't have the newest one, but it works perfectly fine on the Xbox One. Nice, that's very cool. I still have a 360, so <laughs> right, yeah, that's that's where we are in Shea Townsend. So I I have three Halo games, but they're they're all 360. <laughs> there's, a, there's a small mouse that runs inside, and that's how. That's how it I have been. Uh, I, I I've wanted to to upgrade so that I could play that. Uh, so I'm I'm glad to hear that it's a that it's a good game. I I have been missing Master Chief lately, and it's it's all Paramount Plus's fault. Yeah, um, I, yeah. No, I've been in, really enjoying. I would I would highly recommend it if you 
if you're looking for a reason to upgrade, that would be a good one. Here's here's a here's a Microsoft joke for you because uh, I had posted the trailer I think on our patrons group, and someone who has zero experience with Xbox has never played Halo. They they came back and they said. Wow, that is some serious product placement. They're using the the Windows Assistant name in the show. They're using that Cortana in the show. Yeah. And I was like, oh, 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 yeah. sit down. I, I have some things to explain. <laughs> Cortana's been around for a while. Yeah. It's a little bit of geek history there now. Yeah. Beth, how about you? Um, well, uh, because I am, of course, a medieval geek, I'm going to go there. And so uh, one thing that um, I found recently that Boyd and I participated in was we went and took jousting lessons, um, which was totally awesome. We went to the American <laughs> Jousting Alliance here in Southern California, and they immediately put us on enormous horses with deadly weapons and said, have at it. And it was awesome. Um, <laughs> oh my God, there must be so many waivers. <laughs> so many waivers. <laughs> Uh, it was it was a surprising day. I think Boyd and I learned a that we are not medieval knights in any way, shape, or form, and we get so much respect for what they actually did because we were actually um, you know we were led on horses. It wasn't like you know we had full control of the horses. The horses were being led. We were going at about 164th speed, I would estimate, and we were not allowed to hold a shield and a lance at the same time because they knew it was too complicated. We got one or the other. Um, but yeah, we got up there and they had the big helms on us and we had little eye slits. And so we got a real feeling for how trained these medieval knights would have been. Boyd, did you have anything? And they, they must have been super fit. They would have put CrossFitters to shame oh, yeah. because oh, wow. they would have had, I mean, with the armor and the lance and the shield, it probably was 80 pounds worth of stuff, but they could run around, get on the horse. And I was exhausted after three runs with the lance and, and we weren't even wearing the full armor and, mm. or carrying the shield. And so I can't imagine how in shape they must have been to be able to do that. Well, from the research I've done, I, I believe they all uh, drank a lot of Red Bull. <laughs> yes. They drank something. There, I mean, there's a, there's a sort of amazing – again, this is kind of like the thing with food. Like who's the first person to pick that and try to eat it? I mean, there's, there's clearly an evolution that occurred at some point here where they're like, hey, guys, guys, let's find a really difficult – extremely dangerous and also super painful way to kill each other. Yeah, it's called. And they're like, how do we how do we make that Venn diagram work? And they're like, what's a Venn diagram? And we're like, no, no, no that's fine. Just so we'll we'll invent a Venn diagram later. First, we have to figure out how to solve this problem. You know. So. Well, after the day was over, Boyd and I came back, and in very medieval fashion, we did shots of mead. <laughs> I would that's be awesome. more scared of the mead than I would be of the jousting. <laughs> All right. So, Patrick, close us out. I, I have a rare double pick. I don't usually do double picks, but mm -hmm. I, I have to pick one because I've been good for 45 minutes. Uh, and I already had one preset 
that I that I wanted to well, use. We have two guests. So, you get two picks. So so the the first pick is the one that I've been really good on. Uh, Beth works at the J. Paul Getty Museum, mm-hmm. and that is my favorite fucking museum. I love that place. It's a recreation of a Roman villa mm-hmm. uh, in L.A. It, it is absolutely gorgeous. They have fantastic art. They have statues. I mean, you name. It's just. It's a gorgeous museum. I love that museum. Uh, it, it, you know, as a, as a Latin nerd and a, and a kid who studied mythology and, and studied, you know, ancient Rome and all that stuff, uh, it, it was, it was like a candy story. It was awesome. I have always loved that place. So that's my pick number one. If you're ever in LA, uh, and even not like if you, if you're just thinking, I need to go somewhere, go to LA, go to the Getty. It's, yeah. it's an amazing Amazing music. I love working there. I always say I have absolutely the best job in the world. And on the medieval flavor, this summer at the Getty Center, we have a show called The Fantasy of the Middle Ages that's going to have Game of Thrones and, you know, fairy tales and Disney and all kinds of aspects that are inspired by the Middle Ages. So definitely come by this summer to check it out. Patrick, did, I will give you a tour. <laughs> did, did, am I dreaming this? Did Was there damage done to that? To the like, I remember standing on the balcony and looking down at the, the, the columns in the pool and then you can look out on the ocean. I, for some reason, I have this memory of like reading a story that something there got damaged. Well, there was some damage during the 94 earthquake, but that was before my time at Getty. Um, And that's all cleaned up. So it looks good now. I think, I think I'm just, I think I'm smoking crack. I don't think, I, I think that I dreamt it. It's the Mandela effect or something. Yeah, anyway. you, might be, you might be sort of confusing that with all the footage we're seeing of, of people's houses on stilts being <laughs> sheared off the side of the earth. Anything is head. possible, but I will yeah. say that that view is magnificent. Just standing up there, you've got, Gorgeous. you've got the, the, the villa grounds, the garden and everything and the pool. And then you look out and there's the ocean. I mean, you can't get better than that. Uh, my second pick is uh, it's a it's a two part documentary. It's on HBO and HBO Max. Uh, George Carlin's American Dream, and this is looking at George Carlin uh, his entire life and how you you talked about the the minimum wage thing, Tracy. Going back to the the medieval times, there's a the, you know they they kind of encapsulate this and it's like. Uh, three, six hours, something. I don't know. It's a two-part thing. and uh, But they encapsulate the fact that the stuff that he started talking about in the 60s is still going on today. The stuff that he was pointing out that is just stupid that we do as a society is what's happening today. And people to this day are sharing clips of him from the 60s, from the 70s, from the 80s and 90s, because it's so relevant to the shit that's going on in our world right now. He, he was just this, he was this force. Mm-hmm. And, and so to just, to watch this, you, you, you pull things out of it. Like, just go watch it. It's, it's amazing. And, and he was amazing. And he, he was, he was an intellectual comic. He made you think he, he made you uncomfortable. And I think that that's the best kind of anything, right? Whether it's the fiction that we're reading, it's something that pushes us kind of outside of our comfort zone, makes us look at the world in a different way and look at ourselves and go, you know, what can we do to make things better? And I feel like that was a lot of what he did. So George, Amer- uh, George Carlin's American Dream, HBO, HBO Max. Awesome. Oof. 
Well, this has turned into quite a mega episode here. So thanks so much for being with us, Boyd and Beth. So if folks want to find The Lawless Land, if folks want to keep up with your other work, whether it's in history or in the realm of writing thrillers, where should people go and what should people do? Probably the best, if you can buy the book anywhere you, you buy books normally. Um, if you want to find out more about me and Beth, you can come to my website, boydmorrison.com, and that has all my social media links, tells you about the book, tells you where, where you can buy the book, and, um, and, and then you can find us on social media as well. And we actually have clips of us doing jousting on our social media, so be sure to check that nice. out. Nice. <laughs> so are you guys going to go on the road as part of a rent fair or... That would be a lot of fun. It was yeah, just I here think... these past few weeks, so yeah, I yeah. know exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And we are still working already on um, book two, so nice. You know, it's a series. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, it's been awesome having you on, and hopefully we'll we'll catch up to you when book two is out. Excellent. I'd love that. All right. Take care, everybody. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast. Because I've always partnered with teachers as co-hosts, we have homework for you. Giles and Michelle are kind of cool. They have a podcast called Beyond the Functional Nerd. Oh, hold on. Uh, got a memo coming in here. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I guess they call it Beyond the Trope now. I honestly don't know if that's new or what. They even have a website for it, though, beyondthetrope.com. Their podcast is weekly, just like ours, and they talk with people, just like we do, every Tuesday. So if you listen to us, and then go listen to them, and that is really, really important, you have to do it in that order. It's kind of like a double feature, and double features are cool. So check them out over at Beyond the Functional Ner- uh, sorry, wait, <laughs> sorry, beyondthetrope.com. Yeah, that's it beyondthetrope.com. Now, if you enjoyed today's episode, or really any of our episodes, there's lots of things you can do to support us and let us know you like these things, okay? A little bit of validation. We love validation. You could go to wherever you listen to our episodes. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever and give us some stars and reviews. Say something nice about us. You could head over to patreon.com slash functional nerds and toss a couple bucks our way. You could get a supporting or attending membership for Worldcon and nominate us for a Hugo Award in 2023. See, I'm kind of getting ahead of it this time. Uh, It's far too late for 2022, but 2023 is doable. If you need, like if you have questions, just reach out and and ask me how that works. And I I can explain it to you, Todd. You could buy our books. Tracy's got a couple out there. I've got a novel and some novellas out there. Google that shit, people. That would be awesome. You could stop two random strangers in the street and tell them all about us. Like just people you're passing as you're walking. Now, <laughs> if you do that, like uh, make some serious eye contact. Don't, don't blink. Just stare at them right in the eye and tell them to listen to us and why they should. There's probably some stuff I'm forgetting. I'm sure Robert will let me know. Or Todd. Mr. Carpiers, you got it right. How about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe. Oh, for God's sake. Patrick Louise. <laughs>
That's probably a good enough signal. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs>